Welcome to a special release of the Reality Escape Pod. We are putting out one of our many bonus episodes. This one from season four, where we interviewed Alexander Gearholtz. This is the follow-up conversation that we had with him. Yeah, if you didn't already know, we have special episodes exclusively for our Patreon backers. I really loved this conversation that we had with Alexander. He has a really specific philosophy when it comes to his design, and it was so much fun to kind of dig inside his head a little bit more. Yeah, we had a really lovely chat with him. And I think that this episode really represents what our bonus episodes do so well when we have a guest and we've already had a really deep conversation and we are able to have a little bit more of a casual chat, but also dig deeper into some of the things that came up in the main episode. We have a huge backlog of these bonus after shows they are available for only five dollars a month to all of our patrons and i think we have over 40 of these at this point now so you can get access to all of this material by becoming a patron we hope that you enjoy this episode and if you aren't backing us on patreon consider doing so we're putting out a lot of content for you folks and enjoy this special episode. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod bonus show. PG and I are joined once again by our guest from this episode, Alexander Gearholtz. Welcome back. Hey, hey, welcome. Well, well, that's weird to say welcome as well. Just like, nice to be here again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I like to feel welcome, though. It's nice anyhow. <laughs> Just want to reciprocate somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, greetings are so weird across different languages, and you know, sometimes you say the same thing back, and you speak, I think, at least three languages, right? Yeah, it's three, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's not so impressive, but uh, uh, Dutch and German, it's like, it's not too different. From my competent English and barely competent French, for my American uh, brain, three languages is inconceivable. I was very impressed with how good everybody's English was in the Netherlands. Yeah, it's a small country and uh, with a lot of people who love to do international business. So, Do you learn it like in school or is it just from watching TV or how do you guys all pick up English there? I mean, I'm German. So in Germany, uh, I think uh, the rate of people speaking English is not as high as here. It's, it's quite different if you go to, let's say, Hamburg. It would be quite different than, uh, than going to a Dutch city. But people pick it up here just through uh, pop culture, yeah, because everything's in English. Everybody consumes American media. Really? So you guys don't like study it in school or anything? It's in school. Of course, you get the basics in school, but like you also get the basics in school in Germany and you can really see the difference in the Netherlands and in Germany. Like in Germany, everything is dubbed and here everything is English and uh, it's, it's two ah. words. It was one of the things that really jumped out to me when we went to up the game, especially that first year was whenever Lisa and I speak internationally, we work really hard to simplify our phrases and not use idioms. And we try to keep our sentences shorter, not 
because we think people are dumb or anything, which is because it's people are communicating in their second or third or fourth language and processing this stuff is hard. But we were really surprised with the amount of Dutch people who were using all sorts of idioms and phrases that I was like, how do you even know that <laughs> phrase? Like, it was really fun. It was really cool. Yeah. And people like to travel a lot. And uh, well, the, the funny thing is for me is like I live in a house with eight people and everybody speaks English with each other, but no one is a native English. And so now sometimes I go and I uh, speak to natives and I'm like, oh, wow, this is different. And then I realize, <laughs> yeah, it's like I speak English all day long, but most of the time not to English natives. Are you like the International House of Pancakes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Everybody's from a different country. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that's very cool. I mean, even for me, it's weird because like, you know, I'm Chinese, but growing up here, me and my siblings all speak English to each other, right? But we'll speak Chinese to our parents. But if we're all together, we end up speaking English since my siblings and I are speaking English and then my parents will then just swap to English. So you run your games bilingually then? You have like, you know, you can choose English or Dutch? Some of them. Some of them are in English only. Oh, some of them are in English mm -hmm. only. Like the verdict is in English only. The catacomb so far is uh, not entirely bilingual. Sometimes we have Dutch performers and then you can uh, uh, we can do it in Dutch, but not... We're working currently on uh, creating a, a Dutch audio and text of everything. But that's not so much a problem. The problem is really like that also our, our staff is very international. We will have a hard time hiring people if we require them to speak Dutch. Oh, I see. I guess this is like this English speaking privilege because I'm only just now realizing that in your games, the flavor text and things like that were all in English. In the catacombs, when we're in that first room where it looks more like a museum displays. That part is bilingual. Oh, oh, is it bilingual? Mm. Okay. That part is English and Dutch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then also it makes sort of sense to have both languages, like the museum, you know. But in the game itself, things are just in uh, English. Yeah, I'm not such a big fan of having like both languages on top of each other or something or next to each other. I feel like aesthetically it looks not so nice. But during the pandemic, we have gotten a bit of flack for that because more and more Dutch people came to play our game and they didn't like so much that it wasn't available in Dutch. I understand that. And it's like a bit of, yeah, Amsterdam is really a bit of an outlier. It's like such an international city that we and our international team think, uh, yeah, that's fine. We've been very considerate by offering it in English, but then actually we have a bit of a blind spot for maybe the older Dutch population. And uh, we're trying to correct for that now. I know that you spent some time traveling and living in South Korea. I'm wondering if that was before escape rooms. Like, do you have any connections to the South Korean escape room scene there? Unfortunately, not. No, there was a uh, way before escape rooms. Yeah. And uh, none of the people I've been in contact with there still uh, likes or cares about escape rooms. <laughs> Interesting. We are trying very hard to find someone from South Korea who is producing great escape rooms, but also is able and willing to come on an English-speaking podcast. Mm. So that's why I ask. Yeah, I can imagine. It's it's a problem in South Korea is that people's English is sometimes really decent mm -hmm. or sometimes even good, but yeah. uh, but people are very insecure about speaking in public because their, their education system really tries to hammer in that they should speak it perfectly. And if they mm -hmm. don't speak it perfectly, they should better not talk. I've seen it so many times that people were actually talking quite well and then were interrupted by a teacher regularly for every mistake that they made. It was heartbreaking to see people 
Like this is such a such a non-fun way to learn or use a language. When I was in Hong Kong many years ago, and I was I don't know hanging out with my cousins and their friends, like you know we're out drinking and hanging out, and I think at one point one of them got drunk and like the tongues were loosened, and he turns to me and he goes, "Your Chinese is really old-fashioned," <laughs> and I was like, "Is it?" And I I never realized because of course I I mostly only speak it with my parents. And so they're using slang, you know, from like the 60s or the 70s that none of the young kids are, and they don't know any of the slang that young adults are are using. So I'm probably using really bizarre old terms that they're like, you talk like how my parents talk. And this was this was something that I I'd never even really thought about or realized about my Chinese. That's very funny. Yeah. Yes. Like not to that extreme, but I learned my Dutch uh, in the Netherlands uh, in universities. Learning it largely from teachers made me also sound very stiff. <laughs> mm. Like I'm very good at talking about academic subjects, but if you go with me to a bar and I try to tell you a funny story in Dutch, not so great. That's that's interesting. I know my family is from Germany, and my mom grew up speaking German around the house, and didn't know it until she went to take college. Uh, I guess she was taking German in high school, and she was reasonably fluent, but she didn't know that she was speaking a different dialect. She was sp speaking <laughs> Schwäbisch. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And so she she went into this class and this teacher just like really humiliated her. The way she tells the story is she came home and she was like, what, what kind of German are you people even speaking here? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. What was that dialect called? Schwäbisch. It's, Schwäbisch. Uh, Schwäbisch, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's sort of considered like, uh, my, at least my understanding is it's sort of like a lowbrow german yeah it's uh yeah very countryside uh, yeah, yeah yeah very charming though there's a very funny moment when uh i was living in belgium and i was living with a girlfriend of mine and she was trying to learn dutch and our neighbors were trying to learn uh, german with <laughs> an older belgian couple and uh once uh, we went to visit them and uh, my dutch was good so i could uh, understand that they were trying to speak uh, german And my girlfriend was trying to speak uh, Dutch. <laughs> and um, and they talked with each other. And afterwards, she came to me and she was like, it was great. My Dutch became so good. I understood everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, but <laughs> like, they did not speak Dutch. <laughs> uh, when we have family gatherings with Lisa's family, her mom and her aunts all speak a number of different languages and they have a lot of friends from different parts of Europe who sometimes will come and stay and sometimes we'll be sitting at the table and the number of different languages that are being spoken at one time is it's certainly for me at least a challenge like I can I can understand French all right I can't respond well but I can understand and I when I was a kid I understood German quite a bit better but i don't really have any grasp over it now other than like numbers and please and thank you and you know kind of the the, the basic basics like i don't have the rest of it it's really interesting when you're sitting around a table and so many different people are speaking so many different languages we had a dinner once in the house where uh it was like an experiential dinner and one of the rules was that everybody had to speak their mother tongue huh It was bizarre because everybody was just talking to each other and we kind of pretended we would understand each other and like try to respond to each other. And it was just like a total weird, like absurd uh, conversation going on between everyone. And yeah, very funny. Oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. 
<laughs> That's really cool. So speaking of which, I'm interested to hear about this LARP experience that you had in Poland. Because ever since we talked to Johanna on the podcast, I'm like, I really want to go try one of these Nordic LARPs, you know, that she was talking about. So is that kind of what is is that experience what she did? Was that like a Nordic style LARP? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a Nordic style LARP. Uh, it was called the Courage of Wizardry. Courage of Wizardry. College, Col- college, 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 college of wizardry. Of wizardry. Uh, sort of like, sort of like Harry Potter style inspired uh, LARP, and uh, yeah, it was very cool. It's in the same castle that they also host uh, the College of Extraordinary Experiences. I don't know if you know about it. Yes, it's, um, yeah, experience design event. Incredible castle. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. I really, I'm really digging uh, Nordic LARP. Uh, I think it's uh, incredible. Some of my most memorable experiences. I had in this world, like uh, there's an event in uh, Copenhagen uh, every year called Black Box. They do a uh, mini uh, chamber labs, how they call them. And uh, it's basically minimal props. Uh, everybody wears black, a bit of theater lighting. You usually have like a one hour workshop and then uh, it's like a two to three hour lab. I love the concept of minimal kind of black box LARPs. And I look forward to the day where we can explore that kind of style in escape rooms. Something I'd like to dig into. It's as much theater of the mind and production of the mind as it is um, anything else. I I think that there's there's something there and I really want to explore it. Hmm. Yeah, the very minimalism, like a Dogville style uh, escape room. I have have not seen it done well. Me neither, (laughs) but I really want to see it done well. Be interesting yeah yeah yeah. i want as much spectacle as, as possible <laughs> <laughs> we'll reach a point where the flip side of the spectacle is this exploring the minimal and seeing if it's done well not like you know oh i threw some padlocks into a room and called it an escape room like minimal design not minimal production for sure i think spectacle will reach a ceiling eventually like, uh, yeah. you can't just always just ramp up that. I think that's going to be difficult. In the theater world, going to minimalism is like a very common trend. You know, like most theaters here work with very minimal props. But then, of course, you don't have to uh, immerse yourself in the same way that the actors do. You know, the actors mm-hmm. bring it all to life for you. Why a black box lab work is because people go in very committed. They want to do this and they are there for that. They don't go in with a customer mentality. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, provide me an experience they understand that they make the experience for people to get into this playful mindset i think the expensive props and the set design and the soundtrack are sort of like the tools that allow them to do that i'm a horrible actress i have a hard time embodying a character but if you know i'm dressed up i've got the hair and makeup and everything and all the props around me it is it's so much easier to get into the mindset, you know, otherwise you have to do the work beforehand to get into the mindset, right? I mean, getting costume is one part of the preparation that you can do, you know, and it's also usually like what you do in a lab is also you do a workshop before, like it never starts just like that. We did many years an experience called, um, you call it Mobster Mayhem. And it was an experience where people came and everybody got characters. Everybody was part of a gangster slash mobster family. And over the course of an evening, you would have to compete against each other, finding partners in crime for different kind of ventures that you could make up and auction parts of the city. And there was like a horse race and a police race and all sorts of uh, events happening. And uh, 
I think it was very successful with getting a lot of people into the character. Some people were always lost. <laughs> Some people <laughs> didn't manage. And I think now if I would do it again, I think because for us it was we really wanted the mystery that people wouldn't know who the other people really are like or what they are really like. So we tried to avoid that they would meet each other out of character before the scenario. Because thought like it's so cool if you play with somebody, but you don't know what that person's actually like. And for some people, that is very exciting. People like me who are naturally maybe into those uh, experiences and are very open to them. But for other people, this takes a, a lot of the safety away that they need to play like this. So if I would do this experience again, I think I would have maybe a short workshop for people to get to know each other, get a bit warm with each other and get more into this. It's asking a lot and it's quite advanced. Recently in our Patreon, there's been a lot of discussion amongst the patrons about magic circles and escape rooms and whether they start at the room when you walk in the door of the room. Some experiences start basically at the front door like yours do and different mechanics of having that magic circle start in between and your rooms are quite cold starts like when we knock on the door you have to ring the buzzer and then like somebody you know some guy who's in character pokes his head out and he's like oh what, what do you want <laughs> do, do you have the password and like a member of our group that had gotten there early was like what password and he was like ah and he closed the door in their faces you know if this is their first escape room ever i can imagine it's very off-putting and you know we're quite seasoned and even then they thought it was funny but it must be difficult sometimes because your experiences are so immersive the guys in character starts from the minute they step foot on and it's a lot to take in for first timers so is that just up to the discretion of your game masters or how do you deal with onboarding a newer player yeah yeah so most of the time uh, this kind of behavior comes from the enthusiasm of our actors which to some extent they're encouraged to do so. To some extent we try to keep it down a bit because they will automatically keep ramping it up more and more because it's also a lot of fun for them. But yeah, it's true. There's something around the magic circle of stepping into the world of our escape room scenario. And there's something around this idea of like, we're going to go and play an escape room, you know? If I want to go and play an escape room, I want the whole thing to be something fun and interesting and curious which doesn't mean that um, the host is already like a character that is part of the story, but I also don't want to, I don't want it to feel like I go to McDonald's because I feel like I want to warm people up into getting to a playful mood. And if the host is already a bit quirky and a bit playful and a bit weird, they're getting used to the weirdness maybe and they get like more and more warm with, with this. And then the whole thing feels a bit more special. That's at least how I would like it to be. I mean, I love that. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love it. But I'm also an enthusiast. But I can see how it would be very difficult for someone who's totally new to this experience, right? Like, when you typically walk into an escape room company, this is what you expect to hear. Hi, welcome. What game did you book? Did you guys fill out the waivers? Like, oh, you know. But yeah. I understand that for a lot of customers, this is a comforting type of customer service exchange that they're used to, right? Before they launch themselves into an unknown and potentially uncomfortable experience. Yeah, yeah. It happened a few times that we got negative reviews from people who uh, didn't understand the behavior of the performer uh, and interpreted it wrongly. 
but I think it's really the minority. Like the majority of people find it exciting and interesting. Most of the time, I mean, most of the people who play for the first time who come to us have a really great time. And completely spoiled <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, because but also for them, for, for them, it's even more of an adventure than for others. You yeah. know, they have no clue what's going on. They're like, "Ooh, this is part of it." You know, this is everybody's weird. We're playing this is <laughs> like a mystery experience. You know, I think they're 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 maybe even more open to this than uh, people who. Uh, so like think they know what to expect and think they know what they would get. I agree with you. And I know that like my second escape room, I mean, my first escape room was super janky. It was the first escape room in New York. And my second was in Hungary. And all we did was we walked into a building and there was a note that told us the premise of the story that our rich, long lost uncle had passed away. And we were here to prove that we were worthy of his fortune. And that was it. There was no host, there was no person until the end of the game. And like that was, that was bewildering. And it was awesome. It felt like a real adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The question is, will this work for everyone? Will there be people for whom this might not work? Yeah, I think that's possible. Mm-hmm. But I think that is maybe like a, a cost, you know, like, because I think if you try to make something that is equally accessible by really everybody, I think you have to make so many compromises that will also take a lot of the excitement away for some other people. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying I'm not speaking for making games inaccessible, but making sort of certain creative choices that excite some people more than others. This is one of the things that I really loved about most of the Dutch games I played in the Netherlands in general was that I think almost all of the games I played had extremely immersive starts and your host your gm was in character a lot of times they're in costume or at least clothes that that are very kind of uh flavorful or their outfits feel like a costume and it feels like part of the character and and i do think that this is definitely part of the flavor of dutch rooms in general is having that very immersive experience from the beginning kind of a cold start with these hosts that are in character and i loved it i thought it was so amazing. Did you always have live actors and these immersive in-character hosts even from the beginning, like even back in 2015 or when you started? Yeah, I think we had it from the very, very start. I mean, all the way in the beginning, it was us hosting the game. I would host the game. I wouldn't go and just talk to people like I would be a very elaborate, very extravagant version of myself, you know. And I was excited to host people to my escape room. So I was talking to them as if I'm excited. And I was excited to send them on like an adventure. And I think just trying to uh, express this excitement got them also excited, you know. And then I said, this works. We like to play with people and we like to uh, facilitate experiences for them. So we do this automatically. We would never go and have like a just normal service mentality like you would have it in like a, maybe like an H&M, H&M or uh, any kind of shop, you know. It's just not interesting to us. And uh I don't think that I had really played games with live actors or especially not a live host in that way until pretty recently, I feel like, at least here in, in the States. There's not that many. So it's a bummer you can't see the, the freak show. The festival always promotes it at an escape room, but like we try really hard to tell people nothing about that. When they come and they ask about an escape room, we just say, like, what an escape room? You want to see the freak show? You don't want to come? Like People are 100% in character and never mention the word escape room. That was one of the other things about Dutch games was the unique locations. So many of the experience we did there were in real locations, like in churches, in that stock exchange building, in in a five-story abandoned chemical factory. And the locations definitely added so much to the game. It's funny because uh, I think a lot of the inspiration of a lot of designers here come from uh, cinema. Uniquely cinematic experiences are like prison escape movies. 
where everybody knows those. One thing that is amazing about uh, Prison Escape, I think where it works so well, is because you don't have to explain to people what a prison is, how a prison works, how to behave mm -hmm. in a prison. You establish there are guards and you have to follow what they say. So immediately you have people in the game that are in character making sure that the rules are being followed. All just makes it work so well. One of the things that I noticed while I was researching for the main episode, I was looking back at kind of the information that I had about when I played Eliza's Heart and Catacombs. And uh, it turned out that Eliza's Heart was the first game that I had played with Nick Moran. Really? And it was after playing that game that he and I had the multi-hour conversation about whether games could be art, which has come up in the past on the show. So yeah, back when we first met, we, we ended up playing together because Ken Ferguson from The Logic Escapes Me had uh, said, hey, you two should meet. And so we scheduled to play some games together on that trip. I had no idea who he was. I had no idea what Time Run was. And as I recall, you argued that games can be art. And he said no. And, and he is wrong. Uh <laughs> <laughs> His argument was a lot more nuanced than that. His argument was that they weren't, they were something else. And the concept of art need not be put on a pedestal. Uh, and art has no inherent value. It can have value, but the concept of it as, is not. And I, to a certain extent, I agree with him on that. But I, I still, you know, firmly think that games can be art. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would say, I would say for me, like there's a difference in approach. Like mm -hmm. I feel art is maybe more explorative, while design is maybe more going more for something concrete that you know you want to make. But I think a lot of the mm -hmm. process of making art is exploring themes, trying things out. Yeah, I would say the mindset of where you design it and when you do it is probably different when you're an artist than when you're just when you're a designer. That's not a bad distinction to make. So maybe the argument could be that games can have artful design. But I think many people who make games, they don't necessarily have the intention to explore a certain topic and then use that game as a vehicle to connect to this topic in like a personal way. Yeah, I'm not saying that all games are art, but I am saying that some games can be art. Yeah. That's sort of that's sort of where my my argument lands. And also like for me on a fundamental level, if I were to go and make a painting or and produce a piece of music and make a sculpture, each one of those is art and then I put them into a game, do they suddenly stop being art? I don't think so. <sighs> So, yeah, those are some of the things that we <laughs> can be explored in that conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a conversation that is very interesting. I'm, I'm happy to have it sometime. I'm not sure if it's the right spot for here now, but uh, yeah. I, I'm always down to have that conversation. I don't know how much of the audience is. But... I mean, we to, when, when we tell people that uh, when they play the verdict that this is something different, Sander always likes to say, uh, this maybe uh, is not going to be fun. <laughs> And I was telling him, like, wait a minute, maybe that's not the way to sell it, you know? But he's like, yeah, we don't do this so that people just have fun, you know? It's yeah. challenging and difficult, yeah. and they should be, like, you know, like, and I know what he means, because there's easy fun and there's hard fun, you know, like, mm -hmm. and serious fun. If you like to um, seriously contemplate difficult uh, ethical questions, then uh, you're going to have a good time. Uh, mm -hmm. You're going to might, you maybe have fun, but a lot of people maybe wouldn't call this <laughs> intuitively fun. Yeah, it's a just a different mindset. And I think that that is one of the things that 
I struggle with when talking to us, especially the kind of the kinds of creators that we interview. So many of them are sort of like, well, I don't make escape rooms or I don't make escape rooms anymore. And what they're making really is it's just an expanded definition of escape room. It's it's zooming out or zooming in. But I still think structurally and in so many different ways, what they're making has so much to do with escape rooms. Like Chris Latner will say that Brendan Darkmore isn't an escape room. And I haven't played it, but I know enough people who have. I know PG just played it. Is it different from from most escape rooms? I think for sure. But is it not an escape room? I I would be surprised. I would disagree with him in this either. And I also think most people who play it would still call it an escape room. And I hear people talking about it in that way. Yeah, and he, he's he's basically spoiled the whole experience for me on multiple occasions. <laughs> uh, in my opinion, what he's made is an escape room. It's just it's a different style in the same way that like black and white film didn't suddenly become something fundamentally different when you made it color or, you know, when, when you make a comedy, you're not making something fundamental. Like it's not a different medium than when you're making a drama. You're using the medium in a different way. Yeah, I agree. It's an escape room. I mean, it's more of an immersive experience um, on the scale of pure escape room to immersive experiences. It's probably like a seven or an eight towards immersive (laughs) experience if you're going that way. But it's still fundamentally escape room. I think an escape room is an immersive experience. It's just one of the different many kinds of immersive experiences you can have. I was also struggling with this a lot because we were we were talking a lot here about like the terminology, how do we call things that are different because we have the ambitions to do a different kind of things. And then when uh, we were working in the hotel and after months and months of explaining them what we're wanting to do and that we want to use four floors and eight actors and uh, all sorts of things, they were still internally calling it an escape room. And then at one point I thought like, what the heck? Like, we can get away with everything because no one has an idea what an escape room is. That's actually, we should embrace this because we can just go and say, we're going to build an escape room and make the most craziest thing that we can come up with because there's no clear definition of what an escape room is. At least, like, I got more optimistic about this in terms of, like, maybe it doesn't restrict us. Maybe it just opens us doors to, to, to opportunities we otherwise wouldn't have because everybody's like, oh, yeah, escape room is a hype. Great, let's do this. I agree with you. I mean, the example that I've been thinking of in my head is that like styles and approaches to television have changed substantially. But what we call television is still, you know, it's it's just this giant bucket and it it contains within it multitudes. And like if you take Gilligan's Island is television and Survivor is television and then Lost was television. They're all about people stuck on an island. They're doing it very different ways to very different effects produced in very different ways and all dealing with the same kind of concept, but it's all television. And I think you can argue about whether, you know, the, the differences between prestige television and and reality television. You can argue about the nuances within it, but it's still all television. And that's sort of how I'm feeling about escape rooms, immersive games in general, is like, I don't love it when our you know, some of our finest creators, our most innovative creators are like, oh, I don't make escape rooms anymore. It's like, you know, know, embrace what you, you know, embrace it is kind of my feeling. It's Mm -hmm. also, there's a cost to training 
audiences over and over again on new terms and trying to teach people that there's a new idea and you want to do it like that that takes money and it takes effort we had to put the term escape room i think into the name of the podcast yeah. for seo purposes because we originally were saying this is a podcast about immersive gaming which it is and it's a wider umbrella you know to encompass the different types of guests that we get in but ultimately a lot of our audience are escape room enthusiasts and to make it easier for them to find us we had to put escape rooms in the title sure and yeah. now it comes up when you search for it it used to just be listed on all the podcasting apps as just reality escape pod and then in the middle of last season i added a dash and then i put escape rooms and immersive games our listenership went up yeah our, our listenership went up but it also it helped with seo and discovery but also more than anything i think it's more accurate for a while i was trying to broaden the concept and i was trying to get people more excited about a broader concept and the the truth is they are excited about it but also they communicate about these things in particular ways and escape room is it is one of those ways that people communicate and so why fight it i would say one of the reasons is people are still under misconceptions that escape rooms are a certain style of a thing and i've had people tell me oh i could never do an escape room because i, I hate the idea of being locked up mm -hmm. like being stuck in a room right and so that is one of the misconceptions or some of the baggage that I guess comes along with the, the term itself. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, you know, because of course it can limit you uh, uh, as a creator if people come with certain expectations. And it's also frustrating for people who really like, let's say, puzzles, and they're now going to play in a, a game from a creator that thinks of himself more as like making immersive experiences and tries to get rid of puzzles because it cares more about stories and, 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 and whatever. And they come and they're like, ah, I just like those puzzles. Well, there's no more puzzles here. So for me, an escape room has a lot of puzzles, you know. So then it also becomes problematic when people don't anymore know what to expect. When I heard the first time of like an escape room board game, I was like, this is the dumbest idea ever. Well, well then this is, this is not an escape room. And uh, I mean, boy, I was I off, you know. Like this was like such... <laughs> People love this. I was like, there's puzzle games out there already. Like, why, how is this different? You know, but it just managed to create this leverage that inspired so many people and got them so much into this and people love it. I never expected this. I felt the same way. We, we talked about this when we interviewed Juliana mm -hmm. and Arielle when they were contacting us to promote their uh, escape room in a box. And Lisa and I were super cynical about it. And one of the things that we've really tried to do is since then because it was there was a lesson we really try to not be cynical about new things we try to embrace new things see what they are try and figure out what their potential is and then render an opinion instead of going from from zero to cynical which is a very easy human thing to do because change and difference is hard but yeah we we try very hard at this point to reject that reflexive reaction to things as th this does not align with our preconceived notions therefore it must yeah. be bad yeah 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 in general i mean i've got i try so hard to not be cynical i think that's one of the worst uh, mm -hmm. roads down to become a very grumpy uh, old guy <laughs> i'm with you it's kind of this easy path to yeah. misery and so many people seem so eager to walk it and you go too far down and it's very hard to pull yourself back from it. What is first interesting to see is The Secrets of Eliza Hart was a game, for instance, we were planning to shut down 
when part of it was also the economic reality of it and we thought it wouldn't have enough pull anymore for people to get them so far out the city then there came covid uh not a lot of new games have opened up and we got a lot more visitors from uh, dutch players and there's a scene of dutch escape room enthusiasts which we hadn't really tapped into so much because we're yeah much more internationally focused and now this game had uh, like a bit of revival. It's quite well booked and we're getting a lot of reviews on like Dutch uh, reviewing websites so people will really like it. Um, and at the same time, those people are sometimes quite critical about the catacombs. Partially, I guess, because, um, okay, the game has a bit more of a hype, so it's more easy to be critical about it. You have higher expectations. But mm-hmm. also, partially, they don't like how it strays of what they want from an escape room. They actually prefer the experience of playing Elizabeth because it's more puzzle heavy and they love the puzzles and they uh, don't like to be spooked so much and interrupted and uh, maybe not don't care so much about the actors. It's really a different thing. It's, for me, it's interesting. It's sometimes very frustrating as a creator to have to accept that this is people's opinion. And at the same time, yeah, also like, yeah, it, it bumps me out when people are not more enthusiastic about experimentation or novelty or something different. Especially because it's not—it's not that there's a lack of conventional escape rooms to play. You know, it's like it's—it's it's like it's not that they're saying, "Oh, I can never find a puzzle-driven escape room anymore." Like there's enough of those that are really just puzzles. I mean, they—they they are two extremely different styles of games. So it's interesting to think like, "Oh, these are both from the same company." So sometimes I wonder, is it good to? spread it out more so you can tap into all the different genres or different things, different audience that they would like, or is it better to specialize because if they're going to come to a Logic Locks game, they know that, you know, oh, Logic Locks, they know to expect maybe horror, immersive, detailed storyline, and less puzzles. So uh, do you think it's better to maybe specialize in a certain style or brand so that way people know what they're coming to? I mean, for brand building is certainly better. Like, I think it's part of our strengths and our weakness that we did uh, almost never make the same thing twice. Uh, we always kept making new things because we went where our curiosity uh, would lead us, but it wasn't really done from a, like, a very good business sense necessarily, you know, like, because indeed, if I would just go for brand building, if you see like some brand like Dark Park, for instance, which has incredible recognizability, also because their styles there's a there's a more of a red thread going through the experiences and it's more recognizable i think they're one of the most pronounced brands in the escape room world and also they, they have been stylistically very consistent yes. in, the, <laughs> uh, in their theming what what the audience like i think they had the first uh, slip now with an experience that they just opened i'm not sure if you've heard about it yeah and they closed shortly after and i th- like from what i heard from Reis is that is um it wasn't what the audience expected mm-hmm. and wanted. And so here comes the the uh, the, the downside of this. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you have a really strong brand with a really strong uh, expectation, you have to also deliver along the lines of this brand. So was this an escape room that closed? It was a new experience um, that was uh, largely focused around action and laser tech. Mm-hmm. So he moved away even further from like a classical puzzle uh, escape room than he used. Is that the the wasteland? Yeah, yeah. It didn't it didn't really land, and it didn't land with this audience uh, as much. Yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know. I didn't talk in detail about why he made the decision to close it instead of like to to pivot it. But it clearly shows that if you have a very strong brand, 
you have to stay with it. You have to stick with it. People get angry even if you don't because they, they have the expectations. So. I mean, it's a trade-off. I think building a really strong brand around a particular style is great. While that style is in vogue, it becomes a mm. struggle if the brand and its perception and the promise of it falls out of fashion and all of a sudden you're stuck, unable to pivot. You see this in music, you know, a musician becomes mm -hmm. really well known for a, you know, for a particular style. And then they go and they decide they're going to go and do something a little different. They're going to collaborate with an artist outside of their genre and their audience reacts really poorly. I've always taken a broader approach to brand building when it comes to the stuff that we do, possibly to a detriment. I don't know. What we have tried to focus in on is, and, you know, the question that we ask ourselves is like the room escape artist brand and the things that we do are focused as physically and mentally engaging entertainment for smart people. That's pretty much the way that we define what we're striving for. That's broad and it has allowed us to step outside of purely escape room. Not all of the audience goes everywhere that we take all of our content, but we also don't get audience revolts around the stuff. We don't step more mm -hmm. than a step or two, like really it's one step away from what, what our core stuff is. We do definitely take little saunters away from escape rooms. Yeah, I think you're doing it really well. Thanks. I think by now people are expecting it and uh, like like knowing what they're getting and, and the way you have your conversations, I think also people can see why it relates mm -hmm. and what are elements that they can maybe use to get inspiration from and elevate their own experiences. I mean, it helps that escape rooms in general draw from a multitude of disciplines anyway. So it helps us with expanding our content. And like when we run our tours, you know, sometimes the tours we run are purely escape room, but sometimes they include a LARP like game. Like when we hosted the New York tour and we had a experience called ready, which was a trip or meow wolf in, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in Santa Fe, which is more like an art installation. We try to expand the offering a little bit. We try where it's possible and where it's, practical you know when we run a tour we try to give people mostly escape rooms and then we put something else in that we think they'll enjoy and sometimes it's a huge hit usually the reactions that we get to it are i love this this was amazing this was my favorite part of the trip and then we also get you know i i totally see why you put that there i really respect it i appreciate that i saw it not my thing And I'm totally happy with that mm -hmm. reaction. I'd rather have something that some portion of the audience loves rather than something that everybody likes. Because we can always throw another average escape room in, but I'd rather put something in that gets more of a reaction. Yeah, it makes total sense. I think you also have a quite mm -hmm. different theater scene in the US. I mean, I'm not sure in how far the difference there between East Coast and West Coast. I have the impression that the whole immersive theater scene around California is maybe a bit more lowbrow in its approach than the very highbrow theater world in Europe because it's more traditional. And I see that also here from the theater world, not a lot of enthusiasm or interest in incorporating elements from like maybe the world of games or escape rooms. There's more a bit of like a snobbism around it. Well, I think it's really missing out here. And it, it goes in the other direction as well. I think it's like, like Prison Escape, for instance, avoided it like a plague to, mm -hmm. to call themselves a, a theater because they knew it would attract a whole different kind of audience and people didn't want to go there usually don't want theater and i think it's really a bummer 
because I think it holds back like so what what I think has a really great potential. I agree with you. And this was sort of the talk that I wrote and then PG and Lisa ended up giving without me in Las Vegas. Definitely, I tend to attend the ones that are kind of more gamified where there's it's interactive in the way that you are kind of given quests. And like, I have not been to a lot of immersive theater, but the ones I have attended, usually it's like very interactive in that way where, you know, you're like a spy in like a 1950s Berlin or something like that. Like is, is immersive theater the necessary vehicle that gets theater to collaborate with game mechanics and uh, escape room elements? Because I know, for instance, here in the art world, no one wants to talk about escape rooms. It's like for people like the most low bro of entertainment, something like The Nest, for instance, we, we haven't had this here yet. And and here, I think where what really the cutting line is, is in Europe, or at least in Western Europe, the arts is being funded by the state mm-hmm. and not by selling tickets. The experience that people make would be economically unfeasible. Mm-hmm. And um, so to get funding, you have to require certain kind of expectations from someone who will do your funding. So you have, yeah, there's like a... You're playing a bureaucratic game. Yes. And uh, the economic realities of escape rooms also restrictive in many ways because yeah. it's a difficult model. There's more happening through a private ticket sales. It's, yeah, this is largely private ticket sales. The theater world, the arts world has ignored escape rooms by and large, even in places where they probably shouldn't. And I would say that's, that definitely seems to be kind of, at least in Europe and in the US, North America in general, that seems to be the case. And to some extent, I'm kind of okay with that. I think that the arts world gets caught up in a lot of a lot of trends, a lot of styles, a lot of stuff that when they eventually go and start paying attention to what's happening in our world, it's going to complicate things. <laughs> the theater critic approach is very different from at least the way that we approach reviewing escape rooms. And the way that we approach reviewing escape rooms will necessarily evolve. I mean, it has evolved and it will evolve over time as people get better and more deliberate about how they make these games. It forces us as critics to go and refine the the way that we look at it. But I've worked very hard with Lisa to try and resist a lot of the temptations of critic behavior in theater and in movies. And that's a longer conversation to have, but we've worked very hard to resist a lot of that stuff. I don't really look forward to the theater world trying to dig into and understand immersive. <laughs> I think it's it's going to happen and it'll happen bit by bit by bit. I think that immersive is best when it's embraced by people who want to do something with the medium because they think it's an interesting medium to work with. What I am nervous about is the day that people in the in the larger arts world look at this and say, oh, this is being successful, let's go and mine it. Because that is that is where we're going to end up with some really weird stuff. That I and, and weird, I don't necessarily mean good. But I think that that's where the future is lying to be honest because so before we would go to the movies or you know watch these things 
it together in person. And now so many movies and TV shows and things are all streamed directly to our personal devices. Um, nobody wants to go to the movies anymore. They're just, I, I can just watch it in the comfort of my own home. But as humans, we still seek for social events and gathering and social experiences. And I think one of the ways to do that is through these immersive experiences, maybe some type of live theater, something that requires you to be there in person because you have to be able to be there in person to physically interact with these characters and with each other. And so I actually am looking forward to the expansion of more immersive type theater things because I, I, I do think that's the future. That's what will get people out of their houses. And we, we still want to experience these things together with other humans. I, I do I do totally understand the, what, what David says because the, the kind of like the warmth that is within this industry and the passion for uh, what we do and the willingness for people to support each other and care for each other is not present in the art world. <laughs> and, <No. it's, laughs> like, uh, and like clearly this kind of cold, uh, cynical competition that uh, you find there is nothing we necessarily want to introduce. Um, so I, I, I totally I totally agree with that. I want escape rooms and immersive theater and immersive gaming and whatever we want to call this stuff. I want it to expand, but I want it to expand in its own way, as its own art, as its own production. And I want it to establish itself more before somebody from outside of this goes and decides, oh, I'm going to co-op this and I'm going to change the nature of it. You know, and change is fine, but it's like, you know, early on in social media, you know, I was working with a, a large company in the early days of Twitter to get the company onto social media. And at the time, there was this very like utopian tech view that I definitely bought into that the internet was flattening out the world. It was bringing people closer together. It was making it so that companies had to engage more directly with their audiences. It was making it so that people had a better understanding of one another. This is definitely a pre-20-teens notion. The goal really was, like, we wanted brands on Twitter. We wanted brands engaging on Twitter. We thought that like, it was going to improve customer service and customer access. The reality of what brands looking like on Twitter is, is pretty grim. Um, it's not what we thought it was going to be. And that's sort of what I'm saying is that it's it's sort of like when when large companies decide, oh, I want to make an escape room. It, it can easily turn into a devil's bargain if they're not bought into what the art of this is, what the production of this is, what the goals of this is. And they want to go and take it and warp it. Then what ends up happening is you have a big company making a shitty production and reaching a broader audience than a company like Logic Locks will, or Mama Bazooka, or Dark Park. They're reaching more people because they're a recognizable brand and they're putting a lot of money behind it. And they start to control the conversation about what this is and what this is, if by their definition, might suck. That's where my concerns are. This is the struggle of any like kind of underground culture. Like I remember when, you know, when I was raving in the late nineties and going to all these underground parties where we're sneaking speakers into old abandoned bowling alleys and stuff. And there was an amazing feeling, the camaraderie there, the passion. And then of course, now these festivals are all commercialized and huge. And there's a ton of people going to me. It feels totally soulless and I hate it. I would never go. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so th- th- this is the struggle of any underground culture, and you end up being victims of your own success. I'm not interested in commercializing it to that extent. I'm also not so necessarily hyped about big theme parks uh, picking up escape room-like concepts or escape rooms being used to promote movies, etc. Oh, what I care about is like sort of like creative fusion. I just want people who do different kind of things to talk with each other and see where's overlap. For me, the overlap is so striking. I find it fascinating when I can't get those people to talk to each other. Yeah. Because they snob each other. When the people from the theater world snob escape rooms and the people from the escape rooms don't want to go to the theater, I'm like flabbergasted because I'm like, don't you see that there's so much common ground that can be covered together? I don't see as much cross-pollination maybe that I would uh, find exciting. That I agree with. And that's really what the talk that was delivered in Vegas was sort of about. It was trying to help because I felt a snobbery from even the immersive theater scene to a certain extent towards escape rooms. Our talk was really about what immersive theater can learn from escape rooms, about the repeatable Mm -hmm. business model, the brick and mortar Mm -hmm. location, and the differences in how you approach your production if you're making a business that you intend to run for many years versus if you're making a show that you're going to run for, you know, eight nights and then all of the work and everything you did disappears. Yeah, look at Punch Drunk. And so that's sort of what our talk was about, was basically like stop being condescending about escape rooms. This is the most successful ongoing business model for immersives outside of like Punch Drunk size things, which you need a giant amount of money to start with. And I think it helped. The talk opens with, is this what you think of when you think of an escape room? And we show some early bare bones escape room. And people came up and they were like, yeah, that's what I think of it even today. You know, and your talk really convinced me otherwise that it could be something beautiful and gorgeous and thought provoking. And, you know, that would also stimulate your emotions. So one thing that was interesting, like talking about like uh, um the convention and maybe also sort of like the naivety with which we have approached this um, this whole topic back then. Because when we made this, we again had very little ambitions when it came to the business. We had very little ideas about business models, etc. how to grow or scale a company. I mean, we all studied different kind of stuff and we're like living really on the fringes. When I saw two years later, people buying and selling escape rooms at the convention, and making like pre-made escape rooms to be shipped into other countries. I was like, I was a bit disheartened by this. <laughs> when I saw escape room facilities open up in Amsterdam with like, bam, immediately four escape rooms, while we had like spent almost like a year building one. And they were all not great in my opinion, you know? So it's like, uh, they because we all maybe remember the initial spurge of escape hunt starting like I think like 60 franchises all over the world or something I felt a bit conflicted because I was also wondering in how far did we um, stimulate this with the convention Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we created a a field where these people could go and meet others and actually start doing this just like in hindsight I remember this now that there was uh, yeah something inside me that felt conflicted about it yeah I mean I definitely have put content out into the world and I know that there's there's always there's always unexpected ramifications of of cross-pollinization and the way that up the game and what recon is doing when we pull these people together there's going to be unexpected results and some of them are going to be magical and some of them are going to be wow that was that was a decision my 
definitions of success, at least when it comes to digital products or kind of tools, is that I don't think that a tool or a digital product is successful until the audience starts using it in ways that the designers didn't intend. And that's sort of how I feel about conferences and the knowledge gained. You know, like we have an idea of what we want people to take away from this thing. And, you know, the way that you crafted up the game and the way that we crafted Recon, there is intent behind it. And there there is a goal. There's an agenda. There is a, a vision. But the audience, they're going to take that information and they're going to run in a whole different direction with it. I think that's by and large a good thing as long as people are doing it, you know, safely and respectfully to, you know, themselves, their employees, their collaborators and their audience, then have at it. But yeah, we I don't know what the ripple effects of of <laughs> even this conversation, you know, there may be someone who's hearing this and is like, oh, wow, I'm inspired to go do a thing that we have no intention of inspiring. And I think that that's <laughs> like, that's cool. It's a little bit frightening. But it's exciting because this is a space where people are incredibly creative. And that's what I love about it. And I think it's going to change. And over time, it's already changed a lot. And and I think that Up the Game had more to do with changing the trajectory of escape rooms than than anything else. I think that the the awareness that that we all started to have of some of the great things. You know, I remember going and seeing Girls Room for the first time and just being really startled by what was produced there. And I you know, I know that's a little bit of an older game now, but at the time that just melted my brain. I still loved it. I just played it recently and I I thought it was really fun. It's a really cool game, but I mean, you put that in the context of like, I don't know what it was, 2017. It was startling to go to Europe and see something that I just couldn't have comprehended existing at the time. And I think that that's that's my hope is that people see these things, they realize that they exist, and that sparks something in them. Yeah, now we get the people from Europe to come to the US and see uh, what stuff exists there that we don't have here. Okay, this has been a wonderful conversation. Alexander, thank you so much. To our patrons who are listening, hope you enjoyed the conversation. This is the kind of talk that like back when I first wanted to make a podcast, when I sat down with Victor and recorded, it really was born out of the realization that I get to have all of these amazing conversations with these creators that most people don't get to have and wanting to share that. And so that's like the idea of having a podcast like and wanting to have a podcast is the kind of conversation that I've always wanted to share with the community. So I, I hope you've enjoyed it. And a lot of these are born out of the discussions that mm-hmm. you guys are having in the Patreon Discord. So if you're a patron and you're not part of it, you should come join us. And I hope you guys continue to have more thought-provoking discussions in the Discord that I can then mine <laughs> for the episodes. Uh, because this is also an ongoing conversation between us, the guests, and you guys as the Patreons. 